Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is live sound mixer Mark Frink. First of all, Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster combined for a very unique program that is really trying to eliminate the middleman, eliminate the scalper. However, there's a bit of a backlash because of the way it's been done. So Ticketmaster has something called a verified fan, and this is an algorithm that determines whether you're a fan or a sponsor or a bot. No problem there, and it's been used in the past by a number of artists very successfully. However, Taylor Swift takes it to a new level. Here's the way it works. The more you buy, the more likely you are to get a ticket to her concert. So what ends up happening is if you buy a CD that moves you up the chain a little bit, and if you buy one that's coming out on the release date, then you can get it for an additional $48 in shipping costs from her sponsor for the tour, UPS. So basically it costs you $63 to buy the CD, and you have the privilege of buying it for up to 13 times in order to move up the line in order to be eligible to buy a ticket to a concert. Now, if you can't afford that, and let's face it, there's a lot of our fans that can't, well, then what you can do is you can go and watch her new videos up to five times a day. And when you do that, that actually pushes you up the line as well. So as you could imagine, there's a big backlash over this because people feel that she has plenty of money, but this is pretty much gouging her fans. So even though it's a good idea, basically, in order to get rid of the middleman, and let's face it, that's one of the things that really jacks up the prices a lot. However, it's at the cost of buying her merch and the cost of actually promoting her that you're getting a chance to even be able to buy a ticket. So I'm sure this is the way of the future. However, it seems pretty unfair that it actually costs you extra money one way or another, in order to buy a ticket. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. Also check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Another thing that came out in the past week is the fact that Gibson is in even more financial trouble than we knew. Its credit was downgraded by Moody's, and it's going to make it more difficult and more expensive to actually refinance some of the debt. And what ended up happening was Gibson saw that the trend was there were fewer and fewer people buying guitars. Now, they saw that successfully in 2012 and decided to diversify. So what ended up happening was that Gibson bought about a dozen companies, including Onkyo and Tascam and Stanton. The problem was they borrowed money to do this. It wasn't coming out of profits. So as a result, Gibson has $520 million due in 2018. And many think that they won't be able to refinance that because their business outlook is bad. They're really not making money because guitar sales are down. And also, People are kind of fed up with paying a premium for something that's Gibson and not getting what they feel is value added for that. So in order to get around that, Gibson is actually selling off a lot of its assets, like a couple of buildings in downtown Nashville, for instance. The problem is that's not going to bring the debt down enough. So nothing's going to happen for the rest of 2017, but starting in about April of 2018, look for some big things happening at Gibson, and they might not be good things. My guest today is Mark Frink, who has what I consider to be the hardest job in show business, and that's mixing monitors for some of the world's biggest acts. Mark has been trusted with the monitors for a wide variety of music mixing celebs, including Joni Mitchell, the Three Tenors, the Zac Brown Band, the Jacksonville Symphony, and most recently, the Eagles. Even if you're strictly a studio person, Mark has some excellent Q-Mix techniques that are well worth the listen. We spoke via phone from his home in Jacksonville, Florida. I'd like to know how you got into the business. I assume it's like the rest of us. You're a musician first, right? Well, almost. Uh, I started as a drummer, and uh, like, like many uh, 
on this career path, I was the guy with all of the sound equipment. And so as I went from the evolution of one young band to another, I just kept sort of accumulating more and more PA equipment. And since I already had a drum set to drag around, the PA equipment didn't seem like a huge burden. It was a much smaller commitment back in the 70s than it is today. And since I wasn't going to get the girls because I had to pack up my drum set, then I figured I might as well just pack up the PA too and kind of simplified everything. And then, you know, you know how it is. The guitar players always get the girls. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what kind of sound system did you start with, just out of curiosity? Oh, back in those days, uh, it was, uh, it was a, 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 a PV board or a, a Tapco board. Uh, I think I started with the Tapco, I moved on to the PV and then, and then I moved up to a, a tangent 1602, which was quite something in the day we could, we could never imagine why you would need 16 channels, but that way you could do, you could do anything. Um, nowadays you're lucky if your drum set fits in the first 16 channels. <laughs> yeah. Right. What would you consider your first big break then? Well, I went, I, I, I went to college and it, this was back in the day when if you had a part-time job, you could actually kind of pay for most of college as you went along. And I realized I needed a job and I had all the sound equipment and it, it, it occurred to me that there wasn't really a, 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 a quality vendor for small events on campus. And I had all this stuff in my dorm room. So I just rented out a small pile of sound equipment for uh, different things, bands, coffee houses, frat parties, you name it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the partying runs out around midterms and, and then I would, you know, take the money I had earned and go buy my books and knuckle down and start studying like everyone else. But it was a great way to go through college. I had, I had a great time. I went to college for six and a half years on that plan. <laughs> eventually the college sat me down and said, you know, you've been going here for six and a half years as a full-time student and we'd like you to graduate, but we're going to have to make your space open for someone who's a little more serious about graduating. We're going to ask you to go continuing education, which of course is night classes. And I was doing a lot of gigs at that time. So I moved on, uh, and at that time, I changed my major a few times and ended up as an economics and philosophy major. You start taking enough you know, philosophy courses and you realize you don't really need a degree to do anything that you love to do. And uh, so I decided to move on and, and, and formally pursue a career in, in sound reinforcement. But, but I knew I didn't really have the equipment or skills to do it on my own. So I, I found the largest sound company in my area, which was actually a very good company, the company that did all of our big spring concerts on campus. Uh, I went to UMass in Amherst, uh, Western Massachusetts, and they were, they were also the company that did quite a few of the college campus concerts all over New England. And... Uh, and it was a great move for me. It, it took me a little while to get my foot in the door. Um, and I literally started by emptying waste baskets and counting cables and cable trunks. Um, but as soon as they discovered I could drive a truck, uh, my career started to take off because that's the most important thing at a sound company uh, after doing sound, of course. Um, and Sun Sound, uh, a few years later, uh, was the company that co-developed the EAW KF850, which is the first, uh, one of the first trapezoidal full-range cabinets that could be easily assembled into point source arrays. And it was a very successful product, and 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 I I I. Literally was in the right place at the right time when all of that happened, and it was a huge help to my career. My first tour uh, prior to that, uh, coming on Sun Sound, there was a previous series of loudspeakers also made by EAW, 
and uh, uh, EAW liked to use RCF transducers, and they still do to this day. And at the time, there was a huge demand for JBL transducers in speaker cabinets. And so when we bought this early EAW system, we bought it unloaded, and then somebody had to put JBL transducers in it because EAW wouldn't do that at the time. So as the new guy at the company, I got to uh, load up a brand new set of speakers with JBL components, and then that naturally led to loading up the amplifiers and the amplifier racks. Uh, at, at that time, uh, the, the Carver lightweight uh Magnetic field amplifiers had just come on the market, so we used those. And then suddenly I had just wired up the entire sound system that the company had just bought. And a week later, our chance to do a tour with Crystal Gale came along. And since I was the new guy that had just wired up the entire sound system, they sent me along on my first tour with Crystal Gale. As a system tech? Yeah, basically. Yeah. They, they, they knew if, if something went wrong, I was going to be able to quickly dive in, rewire any problems because I was the guy that put it together. So, yeah, it was a nice, gentle way to start off touring. When did you graduate to mixing then? Well, yeah, back in those days, the there was no, there was no direct path mixing you kind of started off like i did in the shop and you graduated if you knew what you're doing you graduated to being a technician and then of course the next move is you 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 graduate not directly to mixing but to being some kind of a system engineer which gives you familiarity with all of the all of the procedures and practices associated with putting up a system and getting it to sound as good as possible and the room du jour. And eventually you get a chance at mixing some of the opening acts that inevitably show up for the headline artists that don't come with an engineer, uh, whether that's at front of house or mixing monitors for them. More often than not, it's mixing monitors. And as a young person, uh, you're naturally always far more interested in mixing front of house than monitors because that's where the sort of the glamour and the and the glory is whereas mixing monitors is a little more of a chore it's not quite so glamorous although you're much closer to the artist you, you also have a, a more direct relationship with the show and the music because of your interaction with the performers on stage but you're no longer mixing for yourself you're mixing for your performers on stage and it's a more of a subservient relationship than front of houses where if you're lucky, you only have to satisfy yourself and your audience, of course. Let's talk about mixing monitors for a second, because I've always felt that was the most difficult job in show business, especially on a big show where you have a lot of mixes going on. How do you keep track of all the mixes? On a big show, what you what you eventually learn as a monitor engineer is that not only are you not mixing for yourself, but you're mixing for people who are focusing on their performance. And so it's not easy for them to communicate with you the things that you need to know to do the right thing for them in any given situation. So the reason the long-term relationships with performers and their engineers are more on the monitor side of things in front of house is that over time, you start to actually learn, they call it mind reading, and of course it's not really mind reading, it's watching body language, it's understanding facial expressions, it's knowing that if they turn towards you and you're not standing beside a pretty girl, it's because they want something for you from you. Hmm. And so all of that combines to make something that is, is called mind reading. But of course, it's not really mind reading. It's, it's uh, understanding uh, the particular situation that each performer's in and, and, and helping them by giving them things that they want as they're asking for them or perhaps even before they know that they need them. Kind of like a waiter in a good restaurant. 
Uh, in the old days, of course, we didn't have in-ear monitors, so most of what a musician would hear on a stage, especially prior to line arrays, was the, the roar of the venue and the sound of all the backline, the amplifiers, the drum set itself, the acoustical stage sound uh, combined with the backside of the PA. And so what you were doing in that situation was kind of adding to the chaos with things that would help the performer, mostly their voice, their instruments, helping them stand out. And then adding to that, uh, the performers around them, you know, with wedge-based monitoring, the guy beside you has a monitor as well. And so whatever's in his monitor, which of course is mostly his voice and his instrument, is something that you hear quite well because it's only a few feet away. It's, it's usually the guys that are further away from you. If you're on the front line, maybe the drummer and the bass player and the guy at the far side of the stage, those are the guys that you need help hearing. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a mixed minus situation. It's giving people stuff that is not immediately present around them, but helps them balance out the totality of what they're hearing. Of course, with in-ear monitors, you stick them in your ear, you get an instantly get about 30 dB of isolation. And so you don't hear anything unless the monitor guy gives it to you. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a second, but I have another question that sort of pertains to that. I know in the studio, when we switched to the engineer giving cue mixes to the musicians being able to dial up their own cue mix, that was great for some performers, but not for most of them because they had all this capability, but they couldn't develop their own mix to save their lives. So what we had to do as engineers sure. is go out there and actually get them a mix to start with. So at least they had a starting point. And is that the same thing with IEMs too? Yeah. Whether it's IEMs or headphones, it's kind of the same problem. And it's actually exacerbated in studios because, uh, at a, at a, at a live gig, you know how long the set's going to be. It's going to be 60 minutes or 90 minutes or two hours. Um, and, uh, you know, after you get past 60 minutes at a reasonable volume, your hearing starts to deteriorate slowly, but surely. <clears throat> and when you hit the two hour mark, you're not hearing things as well. Your, your brain is tired from concentrating so much and you actually need a little help with things. And so, what my philosophy when it comes to in-ear mixing is, you know, it, and this would apply equally to people in a studio is, is you might think that you want to hear everything. You might think you need to hear every single track. You need it loud. You need it, uh, to get you excited. But the reality is if you're going to be listening over a long period of time and the chances are in a studio, it's going to be a lot longer than an hour or two. You might be there for the whole day and into the night. And at that point, your hearing really starts to suffer if you're listening to a loud mix that has everything in it. So my philosophy is to help people understand that if they focus their mix, they can actually listen comfortably for a longer period of time. They can conserve their hearing over the run of their career better, and it's less, it's less fatiguing. And so what I say by a focused mix is, say you've got, say you're, a focused mix is something that predominantly has your elements in it, the things that you're producing, your, your voice, your instruments, anything that you're playing. Um, and then the only other things important to that mix are the essential cues for timing and intonation along with any other instrument that you have to interact with. If you're doing a duet, obviously you need that partner, whether it's vocal or instrumental. If you're harmonizing, you need to hear that part to harmonize correctly. But if you're the lead singer, you don't really need the background vocals in there. You don't need the synthesizer pads. You don't need uh, a lot of the backing tracks that aren't important to your performance. What you need is to concentrate on your performance and the things that will help it. And so a, a focused mix often isn't as satisfying as a typical full-on 
studio headphone mix, but it's something you can listen to for a much longer period of time safely and comfortably. Well, I know in the studio what we tend to do is it doesn't matter what instrument you're playing. You basically get the kick and the snare for your timing. You get a lot of you, whatever you're doing, whatever you're playing or singing, mm-hmm. and then another yeah. instrument, for, like you say, for a tonal center. So it's a piano or something that's non-chorus, so you can kind of get your your bearings from there. And then, you know, fill in a little around the edges, and that would be the mix, and that usually keeps everybody happy. But it sounds like it's much the same thing with IEMs, what you're saying. It's similar. You know, one of the, uh, I, I always tell people that panning is your friend. Panning, when, if you have a, you, you, you need to have a stereo mix in those situations. So the, your, so that your voice and your instruments are in the center where your brain wants to understand them. And then, uh, the other instruments can be panned to one side or the other and doing that actually allows your brain to hear them more clearly and turn them down a little bit. You mentioned kick and snare. A kick and snare is, uh, is a traditional way of understanding the rhythm, but the kick drum over a long period of time starts to really cloud some of the higher frequency elements of your mix and the snare drum pounding away with all that typically 1k i think you know the the sound of a snare drum is really the sound of an sm 57 (laughs) so that 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 snare drum sound pounding away in your head over a long period of time uh, tends to become very tiresome also so what i suggest to people that they try and is seems to become a trend in the last uh, half a decade or so is using something besides the kick drum and the snare drum to give that to people that aren't drummers. So what would that be? Often if if you're interested in the snare drum, there's another microphone nearby, the hi-hat microphone. And if you think about it, your timing cues are more often associated with the hi-hat because it's a steadier beat. The snare drum with syncopation can come in and come out in different places. But the hi-hat tends to be a steady, it's the click track of rock and roll, if you will. Hmm. And it gets a lot of snare in it also. So if you're interested in the snare, you can hear the snare. In fact, if you want more snare and less hi-hat, you can take that hi-hat channel in the monitor mix, you can roll off the high end and you can maybe boost the mid range. And now you're balancing between snare and hi-hat with one microphone that's not half an inch away from the snare drum head, uh, a little gentler sounding. Some people like the overheads. You You can get a nice stereo image of the drum set for the musicians that aren't playing the drum set simply by using the overhead mics panned left and right. It's, uh, you know, you're now micing the drum set at a distance of three or four feet instead of close micing everything. And so, and, and it also captures some of the ambience in the room as well. The drummer says something, it's likely to be better picked up by the overheads and, and the instruments around the drum also get better picked up that way for monitoring. I'm not saying for recording, but mm-hmm. for monitoring purposes. And so in, in reducing the impact of the drums on the people that aren't playing them helps them comfortably play for a long period of time. You know, the six, seven, or eight hours that you might find yourself in a recording studio environment trying to listen to tracks over and over again. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Okay, here's something else. So performers are used to hearing the audience, and when they're using IEMs, they're pretty isolated from that. Do you put up audience mics and feed that into their IEMs as well? There's two schools of thought on that. Some performers really like that and find it interesting and, and helpful, uh, particularly the singers uh, who might be trying to interact with the audience a little more than some of the other performers on stage. Um, however, there's a, there's a big trend Kind of a kind of a retro trend of people going from the more directional 
hyper or super cardioid vocal mics back to the old familiar SM58, which is a cardioid mic, which actually captures quite a bit of sound from the side and, and even a bit from the back. And so if you've got uh, a band that's all on ears, they can use SM58s because they're not concerned about the wedges feeding back into the vocal mics anymore. Uh, so there's a little more forgiveness there. And the performer can even back off the mic a little bit because they can they can sing into that mic instead of putting their lips right on the mic. Uh, they can back off a few inches and they're not listening to the proximity effect of the microphone anymore, that, that woofiness that you get woolly sound from from getting right on the mic but in lifting the level of that mic to everyone's in-ear mix you're also lifting the sounds of the room coming into that mic and so if you've got a very uh enthusiastic audience that's making a lot of noise a lot of applause a lot of cheering and cat calls that's all getting into all of those vocal mics and so the the need for ambience mics to pick up the audiences reduced or eliminated for quite a few artists because they've already got plenty of that. In, in some cases, if it's a great band and a great audience, they've got too much of it in their ears already. So it's sometimes it's not worth the effort for that. And for, for the cases where it is, it's kind of a kind of end up chasing your tail down to a rat hole because it's never going to really be perfect. It's only going to be a, a resemblance of what it might sound like if you didn't hear your ears in. Um, and it can, can be quite a chore to uh, assemble a, a system of ambient mics that is uh, satisfactory to people on ears. And it, 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 to my point of view, most of the time it's not worth the effort except for the rare individual that's after some kind of perfection that's difficult to achieve. Are you adding effects as well in the uh, inners? Oh, sure. Yeah, the ears are so everything is close. For the most part, everything's close mic, so there's not any ambience in any of the tracks. And so if you don't put a splash of reverb on everything, then it's harder to hear it because your, your brain is used to naturally hearing the ambience of a, of a performance space. It's used to hearing uh, at a minimum some early reflections and a little bit of, a little bit of slap. And so, but they only want it on primarily on their voice and, and maybe their instrument, but not a whole lot. I mean, a little bit goes a long way. So what you've created is a situation where now, you know, in the old days, you, you might have, you know, with wedge-based monitoring, you might have wanted maybe a little reverb for the singer, maybe a little delay, and somebody, maybe a sax player with a solo, might have wanted uh, some reverb on their instrument. But now, with the dryness that you get in your mix with the in-ear monitor isolation, now you have a situation where a tiny bit of reverb, even so little as to not, be very noticeable is actually extremely helpful in terms of hearing your instrument. So what you end up with is, is dedicated reverbs for uh, every singer. I won't, certainly every singer that's got a, a lead part in a song. And, 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 but it's even helpful with the background singers and many of the instruments just to make them sit in a space that that's easier to hear. So whereas, you know, on a wedge-based monitor system, you might have uh, two or three effects, and that would always be enough. Now with uh, in-ears, uh, I'm mixing monitors for the Eagles, and I've got a whole bank of uh, 12 effects running on 12 auxiliary sends so that I can uh, isolate dedicated effects for specific people for specific purposes and, you know, run them on a, scene by scene basis depending on the song and who's singing and who's got a lead part so it can get it can get quite carried away for a very uh subtle effect one thing i like is you're talking so much about the technique but 
so much of it involves the psychology behind it as well, psychology behind what you're doing. The old expression is uh, monitors is uh, half audio and the other 90% is psychology. <laughs> yeah, it sounds true. Okay, what's the biggest show that you've ever mixed in terms of the number of mixes? Number of mixes. Uh, this Eagle show that I'm on uh, this summer is quite extensive. Uh, previous to that, uh, I was with uh, the Zach Brown Band, and there are a number of multi-instrumentalists in Zach's band, and his band is rather large. I think there was, we occasionally would add a horn section, but even without the horn section, there were eight or nine people on stage all running around, often trading instruments. There was, there was at least two guys playing the keyboard rig. So in a monitor situation, when you do that, you've got to split your keyboard in, in, inputs because the guy playing it is going to want to hear it differently than, than the guy not playing it. But when they go back and forth, you've got to be able to flip channels back and forth to accommodate that. So that was on a, a Digico. That was on a Digico SD10. I think I might have had 24 mixes on that between effects and everything. Um, most of those guys were on ears, so that actually simplified things quite a bit. It meant the band could go into a terrible sounding room, it was a, a bad sounding shed with a metal roof, for example, and it it wouldn't affect them that much because of the isolation that they get from the ears. Uh, with the Eagles, I've got my, I've got one of the newer Digicos, the SD five, and I have it configured for 120 inputs and 48 outputs, about half of which are stereo for in-ears. Wow. Uh, the, the Eagles uses a combination of ears and wedges, and there's actually two monitor guys, uh, because, they want an extreme amount of focus and attention. And when you've got, then you've got nine musicians on stage. Uh, the best way to do that is with two engineers, one on each side of the stage. And, and that allows you to focus on uh, half as many musicians and, and, and give them what they want song by song, moment by moment, much better than if you're trying to take care of all of them at once. And, you know, with a band like the Eagles, there really is no, there is no star. Uh, everyone's a bit of a star in that show. It's a super group, really. Sounds complicated. Well, it can be, but the console is very powerful. The console gives you the power of creating snapshots, and so every song becomes a snapshot. And their their set is very predictable. Unlike unlike uh, unlike the Zach Brown band. The Zach Brown band actually they're production manager on a day-to-day -day basis goes through and entirely scrambles the set list to make it interesting for the band every day and to make sure that some of the songs that they can't play every night get played on a regular basis without getting repetitive and boring. And so, you know, they always play the same, they always start the show with the same song and end with uh, their chicken fried song. That's a big hit for them. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of their set, it's completely unpredictable, aside from the fact that they always do a little kind of a breakdown acoustic set in the middle, which has become a bit of a rock and roll tradition also for many bands. Uh, however, with the Eagles, it's, it's, they play in the same show. It's the same set uh, with, with very minor changes. And that's more typical of what most bands do in concert is they have a a predictable set that runs down in a, in a particular order uh, because they spend a lot of time kind of putting things in the order that they want that year. Um, and so they always kind of know what's going to happen next. And it's, it's for, for some musicians, that's far less stressful and they, they're happy to reduce the stress, even if it might seem a little more boring to play all the songs in the same order every night kind of a trade-off. I saw that you mixed the Jacksonville Symphony. Are you doing monitors or are you doing front of house there? Well, symphonies don't really get mixed. They get balanced. So I, I, I have another partner that I work with there. Uh, 
uh, James, who's the, the the other engineer, and I I often spend more time miking up the stage and working with the musicians on stage and occasionally doing monitors and mixing front of house. It's just part of my part of my uh, you know transition to being a stage oriented technician. There's there's um, whether it's classical music or rock and roll or anything in between, there's kind of a, as a technician, there's an, an intimacy that you form with the musician. You know, we talked about the psychology of, of what we do and, 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 and the more you can make whatever the music is, the more you can make the performers comfortable and happy and, and at ease on stage, the better the show is going to be even if it's just saying, Hey, how you doing? And you know, that sort of thing seems like a little thing, but the happier the musician is, the better the show is. So I'm, 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 I'm as, as happy to sit on the side of the stage as I am at front of house in any of these situations. And, and the great, the great joy, you know, my, my partner, James, we, we, we of course quite often do what we call straight shows and, and in a straight show, you're not reinforcing anything. The, the orchestra is playing in the hall sound that the audience hears is the sound of the orchestra in the hall. And so audio consists merely of running an announcement that reminds people to turn off their cell phones uh, and not take flash photography. And then that's it. That's it for true audio. And my partner, James finds shows to be a bit boring. I love it <laughs> because suddenly, you know, so rarely in the music business, are we listening to music without technology in between us and the, and the sound itself? You know, it's, it's just with a straight symphony show, it's just the sound of the music in the hall. And it's, it's simply is what it is, you know? And, and of course, the, you know, the conductor, conductor's the one that's making the changes, you know, telling the, perhaps telling the brass section to play into their stands a little bit because they're too loud or, trying to get the uh, woodwinds to stand out a little bit better or, or getting the, the strings to, to dig in a little harder in the right place. But that's all being done organically. And so as a sound guy, when you're in that situation listening to it, you're all, all on one side of your brain. You're not thinking about EQ or gain structure or panning or balancing or anything like that because it's all done. It's done already. There's none of that, none of that matters. And so it's refreshing to listen to music and, and be entirely on that side of your brain. I mean, you can't even listen to, you can't even listen to pop music on a stereo without thinking about things like, oh, that's clearly an SM57 on the snare drum. <laughs> or, gosh, I wish the bump and ride on that guitar solo was a little better. That type of thing. But with, 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 with symphony music in a symphony hall, it's, I find it the most relaxing thing of all. Yeah, I agree with you. There's nothing like organic music, that's for sure. You mentioned miking before, and one of the things that we find in the studio is the old classic engineers would add a lot of space, whatever they were miking. The mic was placed a foot, two feet away, and let the sound develop. And that was kind of changed over the years, where suddenly everything got very, very close mic'd. And the trend, of course, is going back where, you know, you're adding space so the sound can develop. So how does that work live because you're more concerned or are you as concerned with the leakage as, you know, we are in the studio? Yeah, you, you, want, as much, you want as much isolation as you can get with live. Otherwise, you're, you're, you know, if you've got the drum set right beside the piano and it's a, it's a real acoustic piano with microphones on it, and you're turning up the piano, well, if the drum set's, you know, bleeding into the piano as it normally does, and you're also probably turning up a kind of a muffled sounding kick and snare sound at the same time. So it's, it's really destroying the ability to, 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 to finally craft the sound of the individual instruments and put them in balance correctly. So yeah, isolation for live sound isolation is definitely your friend. You uh, tend to prefer uh, tighter microphone patterns. You tend to prefer 
cardioids and uh, I mean supercardioids and hypercardioids to regular cardioid microphones. Uh, you tend to get things in close if you can. You you'll isolate them with rock and roll. You know, there's a, a great trend over the last couple of decades to take loud sounding guitar cabinets and, and put them off stage or isolate them with blankets or even build them into a, a road case uh, to shut them up along with the longstanding tradition of taking, you know, Leslie cabinets and putting them off stage and covering them with blankets so that they're not quite so loud for all the performers that can get them in their monitors if they want them. So yeah, yeah. Close miking is your friend for lab sound. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I don't want to keep you too long here. So let's talk about AES. You put together quite a program for AES at NAM this year. You've asked me to handle the studio side of things, but the sound reinforcement track is really amazing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, that's very kind of you to say so, Bobby. I, uh, I appreciate that. Um, sure. Well, what we've done, our mission at the new AES at NAM event is to provide uh, a new home for pro audio attendees that hasn't really existed before. And we've, we've done that by focusing on on education and training. You know, some of the products that we use are technically so complicated that it's hard to get a good sense of that product unless you've sat down with it for a day or half a day and had someone from the manufacturer walk you through it, show you what the features are, what's different about their product than some other products, and and give you the confidence that you could then take that product the next day and maybe go use it at a gig for the first time. Obviously, nobody reads the manual anymore, and, and most product manuals aren't written all that well, you know, the old saying, and in case of trouble break out the manual and read it finally. But um, our program has a a console, live console training. We've got five rooms dedicated to training consoles from five leading manufacturers. So that, uh, and we're going to, we're going to end each day of console training uh, in the last hour with a, with a live band uh, isolated in a room uh, with their preamps from all these consoles in that room feeding all of the different learning consoles. And so people will be able to do a sound check with a band at the end of their day of learning and then have the band play some songs and, you know, build a mix, put a mix together on the console. And that's a great way to get confidence on any console is to actually not just learn the console, but use it with a live performance of some kind. Uh, Similarly, there's a, there's a set of line array loudspeaker system, uh, training. Uh, we've got six top manufacturers and each one will spend a couple of hours in a classroom talking about the theory, the design theory behind the way their line array is put together and how it works as a system. And then teaching the predictive software that goes with the system and taking an example and showing how you decide what the different angles in your array might be. And then in the last hour of that half-day session, that class goes and they actually assemble that line array that they've just looked at um, in the software. There's a chain motor that uh, supports the flying hardware, and they build the array onto that flying hardware and lift it up in the air and then put some pink noise through it and play a track of music and proof the system. And so at the end of that half-day process, all of, all of those students walk away now knowing that if they were to encounter that system in the future, whether as a sub-hire or as a tour uh, using a different line array each day, that they would have the confidence they understand how the system works and how they can get the most out of it. Or perhaps, you know, perhaps they're thinking of, buying a line array and you know when you buy a line array you're not just buying one speaker you're buying you know a couple dozen speakers at a minimum and that's a pretty big investment so for anyone thinking of buying uh, a line array system or, or, or a mixing board it's a great opportunity to sort of evaluate 
that product in a very hands-on type of situation. So it's a win-win for the manufacturers uh, and the attendees. It's also a landmark year for entertainment wireless because of the, the new FCC regulations that are going to very quickly take away all of the spectrum above about 600 megahertz. And so people are going to have to think about how to use less spectrum that's more crowded because of all of the TV stations that will move down into the 500 megahertz spectrum. So we have a whole a whole day-long program uh, that's, again, supported by leading wireless manufacturers that will talk about what to expect in the future, talk about best practices, and then break out into individual classrooms that will teach uh, specific hardware and software that uh, each manufacturer supports. Finally, there's a measurement and optimization track for people that are interested as system engineers and how to get the most out of their sound system, uh, whether it's a concert sound system or a or, or even a, a playback system in a control room. I talk about the different types of software and the, and the practices used to get sound systems to sound as good as they possibly can for the purpose they're, they're being used. So that's kind of an overview of that live sound part of the program. And of course, in addition to your uh, excellent program that you've put together for all four days, we're also building uh, three, I call them control room environments. They're, they're of course, uh, most control rooms are uh, digital audio workstation centric. So they'll each be more or less focused on a particular make of DAW, but they'll, they'll be complete control room environments with uh, near field monitors, uh, and all of the associated control room equipment so that the representatives from those manufacturers can train people on some of the newer features uh, or more important features of, of the different softwares that, that they represent in those three rooms. It's all really exciting. It's going to be a great show. That's going to be something that people haven't seen before. It's intended to provide... You know, at a typical trade show, you're lucky if you can get into a demo room and and learn something new that actually helps you on a day-to-day basis. This is intended to create as much value as possible for the attendee in a way that's never been done before. So say you are, you know, and it's at a great time of year for a lot of people. It's uh, the third week in January. It's in Anaheim. The weather's usually fairly nice. Uh, it's a great time of year because that's the, that's the one moment where a lot of people kind of can catch their breath and afford to take a few days off and do something like this. But, you know, for example, if you were in the market for a, a, a large format uh, live sound console, well, we're going to have five rooms of consoles there. And you can literally go and, and, and learn a new console every day for four days go from one to the next to the next. And, you know, if you're going to spend a large format console these days is on the order of uh, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars. If you're going to spend that kind of money, uh, why not take the time to explore them? There, there really aren't showroom floors where you can do that. Once upon a time, people would stock those kind of things in the old days. You would rent the console to try it out. And you can, of course you can still do that. If you go to a trade show, you're, you're only going to get a five or 10 minute spiel from who's ever booth you're in. You're never going to really learn the console inside and out. But, but this is intended to give people an, an in-depth experience on the product of their choice uh, so they can get as much out of it as possible. I just wanted to remind everyone to mark their calendars. January 25th through the 28th is the time to be in Anaheim, California. And in addition to your pass for AES at NAM, it also includes a pass to the NAM show itself. So there's going to be a lot to do. You could easily spend a, a week in Anaheim and get a lot out of it, meet some new people, and uh, walk away with some valuable experience.
Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Last question, Mark. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody gave to you along the way or maybe something that you learned? Ah, business advice. Well, I'm always surprised at how truly small our business is. And you, you think that you run into people and you encounter them briefly and, you know, you move on in your careers. But our business is so small that there's a really good chance that the experience you have with an individual on one day at one gig or in one studio is going to come back years later and have an effect on your career in a way that you can't understand in the moment. Years ago, I did a show at a relatively small venue with uh, Tony Bennett at a time in his career that he wasn't doing quite so well. Uh, it was right before his big comeback with his MTV Unplugged album. And I did a gig, and I, I enjoy that kind of music um, and had a good time at the show. And a month later, I got a phone call from the road manager, and he called me to hire me to work for Tony Bennett. And he said, well, Tony remembered you that day. Uh, I guess we had a good show. And of, of all the people we've worked with in the last year, for some reason, you're the guy whose name he remembered. And he asked me to call you and hire you. And that came out of the blue. But things like that happen in this business all the time. And, and you never know. Yeah, I'm working for the Eagles this summer. Well, everyone that I interviewed for this job before I was hired had a connection with me from some gig that I had done years ago. And it was not my resume that got me the job. It was these personal connections. So my business advice was to treat all of your connections in the business as if they were golden because they really will make a difference. If your job at every level of this business as a technician, if you're not a performer, your job is to create a safe, comfortable environment for your artists to enjoy themselves because as Tony Bennett used to say, we don't get paid for the gigs. We get paid for the travel. <laughs> I love that. That's perfect. To learn more about Mark, go to markfrink.com, M-A-R-K-F-R-I-N-K, all one word, markfrink.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or you can go to bobbyownercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find to sign up for him for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.